Please help them to speak clearly and faithfully. Please prepare our hearts to receive your word. Help us to understand it fully so that we can apply it to our lives and be able to teach it to others. Amen. When Reese gave Matthew 10 for me to preach on this semester, he explained his logic. He said, oh, you're one of the mission guys. This passage is about missions. I thought I'd give it to you, which is great. Except the more that I've read the passage, the more I've thought about the passage, the more I've become convinced that it's actually primarily not about mission. (laughs) (laughs) You're bad, Reese. The way the passage is often approached is to say, well, chapter 9, the fields are white for the harvest, or ripe for the harvest, but the workers are few. (coughs) Jesus cannot possibly fulfil this mission on his own. So he multiplies himself, appointing and authorising the twelve who go out on a mission, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And that preaches very well, especially in a theological college. And so I wish that that was its uh, logic. I'd love to preach it that way, but it would do the passage a disservice. Rather, I want to reframe the passage, looking at it with fresh eyes, to see that it is primarily about failed leadership and how Jesus responds to the leadership crisis among God's people, which is fine because I'm not just the, one of the missions guys, I'm one of the leadership guys, Reese. So it still all works. <laughs> to understand what's behind the appointment of the 12 in chapter 10, we need to go back into chapter 9. As the crowds are drawn to Jesus in their hundreds, he looks out to them and in verse 36, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I wouldn't uh, make this next comment uh, in a church context, but in a theological context, I think I'm allowed to refer to the Greek and say that it is dramatic. And perhaps to capture that drama, it really says they were torn apart and thrown to the ground. Jesus looks at the crowd who he sees are like sheep who have been torn apart and thrown to the ground, which is exactly what happens to sheep if they're left unprotected and fall prey to wolves and bears. It's exactly what's expressed in Ezekiel 34, which in verse 5 says, So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and when they were scattered they became food, for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. It's very much against this background that we need to see what's going on here. And Ezekiel chapter 34 rings very loudly in our ears as we read this passage. Jesus seems to be drawing on Ezekiel and applying it to the present situation, sharing in the compassion of Yahweh who laments at the vulnerability of his sheep. So you might like to flick over to Ezekiel 34, keep some of your anatomy in chapter 10 of Matthew, but 
on page 865, you'll see that uh, he goes on to say, right at the bottom, right there, from verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because my, sh- my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. In Ezekiel, the prophet condemns Israel's leadership using the metaphor of shepherds and sheep, sheep who are lost, wandering the mountains and high hills, sheep who are torn apart and thrown down as food for the wild animals. He condemns those leaders and promises to remove them. Verse 10, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that their shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. It will no longer be food for them. Now, flick back to Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus called his disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles, and so on. Then in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. What have they been asked to do? They have been asked to do the job that Israel's leadership has failed to do. The sheep are scattered and the leaders have refused to go after them. And so here God appoints 12, commissioning them, giving them authority, commanding them to go only to the lost sheep of Israel in fulfilment of Ezekiel's word. This is the judgment of Israel's leaders and their replacement as the leaders of God's people by the 12 disciples. To make this even clearer, we see that the passage is in fact bookended by the failure and sin of Israel's leaders. There is an inclusio, and I love the word inclusio, and I think if you're writing a New Testament essay, you need to use the word inclusio, because it's a great word. Inclusio, I just like saying it. (laughs) There is an inclusio formed by Matthew 9.34, just before the passage that was read, when the Pharisees proclaim, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And Matthew 10.25, which we'll look at tomorrow, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So the whole question that drives this passage, what bookends it, And what drives the passage is Israel's failed leadership. 
and all the references and allusions to Ezekiel in that passage, chapter 34, <coughs> capture the fact that this is a fulfilment of that word. The assessment of the Pharisees in 934, ascribing Jesus' authority to Satan, perfectly captures the abject failure of Israel's leadership to accept the signs, see that the kingdom is coming, and embrace their Messiah. Especially when it's contrasted to the response of the crowds back in verse 33, who say, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. How should the priests and teachers of the law and the Pharisees who together constitute the Sanhedrin and Israel's leadership, how should they have responded to the announcement of the kingdom? They should have seen the signs. They should have welcomed the Messiah and joined him on his mission of preparing God's people for the coming of the kingdom. Especially because it was an urgent task with the kingdom so imminent. That's the point of the metaphor in chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. That's not pointing to the readiness of the crowds to submit to Jesus if only, one, if only someone would proclaim the gospel to them. No, in fact, we see the mixed response of Israel later on belies that interpretation. No, what it points to is the urgency of this task, which is driven by the fact that the kingdom is imminent, as the passage says uh, later, and again, as we'll see tomorrow in chapter 10, verse 23. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is an urgent task because the kingdom is coming and Israel are not yet prepared. Israel's leadership have abrogated their responsibility. So here it is given to the twelve. And so in verses 5 to 8, the disciples join Jesus or will join Jesus in heralding the coming of the Messiah. They're to go only to the lost sheep of Israel because they're undertaking the function of Israel's leadership, fulfilling the function that they had failed to do in Ezekiel, gathering the sheep, alerting Israel to their Messiah and preparing them for the coming kingdom. If the appointment of the twelve is a judgment on Israel's leadership, for their rejection of Jesus, it is also a judgment on Israel, dividing them into the faithful and the wicked. Verses 9 to 15, verse 9 shows us that as the apostles join Jesus and proclaim the kingdom, they're to do so in a way that deliberately provokes a response. Up to now, the crowd has been impressed. But being impressed is different to being committed. It's all very well to sit back and say, fantastic, we've won gold in the women's rugby sevens. Woohoo! But it's a different thing to be there, to stick through them, to stick to them uh, through to stick with them through the hard times. 
It's all very easy to stand back and be impressed, which up to now is all the crowd has done. And so they perform here in a, in a manner very similar to the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, a kind of enacted parable. They behave in a way which will force the people to take sides, that will force people to make a response, make a commitment. And so they are to take no money, no bag, no spare sandals or clothes, so that they become absolutely dependent on their hearers for hospitality. And the measure of hospitality those villagers show to those proclaiming the kingdom will be like a spiritual barometer. They are to go to the villagers and the manner in which they are greeted and the hospitality they receive will be an act of self-judgment by Israel. The principle that governs that is found in the second half of verse 8. Freely you have received, freely give. I suspect that really belongs to verse 9, should be in parentheses and kind of quotation marks like a bit of a proverb. It speaks not of the attitude of the disciples. It's not a command to them, but rather to Israel. Because it is these villages that are receiving freely the signs of the kingdom. They are receiving freely healing, life, cleansing and exorcism at no cost. Because the kingdom comes as God's free gift. And as a sign that they've received it, as a sign that they are members of that kingdom, as a sign they recognise the Messiah, they are to welcome the disciples with food and shelter and clothing and whatever they need. But if they don't, if they do not welcome the disciples or listen to their words, if they do not receive the gifts and the signs, sorry, if they do receive the gift and the signs but do not receive the disciples, then they will demonstrate that they do not recognise the kingdom or its king. In which case the disciples, as part of this enacted parable, are to leave the town shaking the dust off their, off their feet as a sign of God's judgment on that town. For as Jesus says, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment for that, than for that town. This passage speaks primarily of the massive shift in salvation history as Jesus redefines the people of God around faith and not race. It explains the failure of Israel's leadership and the dire consequences of that failure. And it points ultimately to the fulfilment of Ezekiel's vision of God himself coming and replacing Israel's leaders, being himself their shepherd. But it does speak to us. It speaks to us because what this passage alerts us to is the fundamental importance of leadership, the fundamental importance of leadership to God's people. What happened when Israel's leadership failed? The sheep were scattered. They were left vulnerable 
and they were consumed. Good leadership is essential. Good leadership is essential in keeping God's people faithful. If anyone should have recognised the signs and called Israel to faithfulness in the light of the coming kingdom, it should have been Israel's leaders. If anyone should have recognised their shortfalls and failures and called them to repentance, it should have been Israel's leaders. And so we find today that God's people are subject to a thousand siren voices luring them towards destruction. What can stop that other than faithful leadership? God's people are struggling to navigate a brave new world with all its complexities and the confusion and doubts that they raise. What will provide clarity other than faithful leadership? Christianity struggles for credibility amidst a thousand failures. What will provide confidence to God's people other than faithful leadership? More than ever, God's people today need faithful leaders. One thing Peter Adam used to say is that at Ridley there are plenty of people who want to be part of a ministry team. They're glad to be part of a ministry team as number two, three, four, five or even six. But there's not many who want to be number one, who want to lead a ministry team, particularly if it's a ministry team made up of one which about 70% of them are. That's understandable. Leadership is demanding. It's relentless. It's rarely appreciated. But if we don't step up, then it is disastrous, disastrous for God's people who without faithful leadership are lost, are scattered, are vulnerable. Perhaps you need to think about the call and work out whether God has gifted you and is raising you up to lead. We need faithful leaders. But we also need faithful followers. If that's what the second half of the passage is about. Of course, as evangelicals, we're taught to be suspicious of leadership. We have a low view of those God of sorry, we have a low view of those whom God has appointed over us. Not only does that contribute to the crisis of leadership, after all, who wants to lead if no one's willing to follow? But it creates a crisis of followership. We live in an individualistic society where personal moral authority carries the day, where we follow our conscience as the final arbiter, where we follow our in instinct, where we follow our own way. But rarely do we follow our leaders, our God-given, God-appointed leaders. But leadership is central to the way God has wired his church. It's key to the way God, 
fulfills his purposes. It's critical to the life of his church. We need people who will lead and we need to be people who will follow. Jesus looked out at the crowd and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Good leadership is at the heart of the order that God intended for his people. It is a vital calling, a noble calling and an urgent calling. Perhaps it's also your calling. Let me pray. Our God, we beg you not to leave your people without leadership, good, godly and faithful leadership. Continue to gift your people, call and raise them up, that they may not be like sheep without a shepherd, but instead find you in their midst. We pray that you might even call many among us to this noble task, giving us confidence, equipping us, shaping us, that we might not be like the leadership that you rejected, but like you, leading sacrificially and compassionately like our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.